Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. If you look with me, the main object of verse 12 is the word salvation. So verse 12 is about salvation. If, if you're a Christian, you have heard this word, and it is probably one of your favorite words in the entire Bible. You'd be hard-pressed to find a better word in the Bible than this word in verse 12, salvation. And if you're a Christian, you may have heard someone say what I am about to say. You have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. In the past, you were saved. In the present, you are being saved. And in the future, you will be saved. And the Bible uses the word salvation to describe all three of those realities. It's like this. In the past, you were saved. Christian, in the past, you were saved. The theological term for this salvation is justification. That's the big word. Justification. When you believed in Jesus, and that happened, you placed your trust in Jesus. When that happened, your sins were forgiven. Your sins were forgiven and the righteousness of Jesus, the perfection of Jesus was imputed to you. Which means it wasn't yours, but that righteousness was credited to your account. And you were declared by God not guilty. But you know you're guilty. I know I'm guilty. But because of what Jesus has done, when I placed my faith in Him, God justified me. He declared me not guilty. In justification, you were instantly saved from the penalty of your sin. And that is salvation. In the present, Christian... You are being saved. And the theological term for this is sanctification. You are maturing. You are growing in grace. You are changing. You are transforming. You are becoming more like Jesus. In sanctification, you are progressively being saved from the power and the practice of sin. So in the past, you were saved. You were instantly saved from the penalty of sin. But now as a Christian, you are being progressively saved from the power and the practice of sin. And that also is salvation. In the future... Christian, you will be saved. And the theological term for that is glorification. 
upon Christ's return, your soul will be reunited to your perfect resurrected body and you will be totally without sin, not even capable of sin. You will be totally ready for heaven. You will be finally perfectly fit for heaven. In glorification, you will be ultimately saved from the presence of sin. And that also is salvation. That's a massive word in the Bible. In the past, by justification, you were instantly saved from the penalty of sin. In the present, you are progressively being saved from the power of sin and even the presence of sin. And in the future, you will be ultimately saved from the presence of sin. Now, which salvation is in verse 12? That's the point of reviewing those. The salvation in verse 12 is sanctification. But we know this for a couple reasons. First, verses 12 and 13 are written in the present tense. And sanctification is the only present tense ongoing salvation. Justified in the past, glorified in the future, sanctified now. And second, second, we don't work out our justification. More on that in a few minutes. But we do not work out our justification, but we do work out our sanctification. And so, verses 12 and 13 are about sanctification. Many, in fact, have said that these two little verses are the most important verses in the entire Bible about sanctification. These are big verses. And specifically in verses 12 and 13, we are, by God's grace and enabling, we're going to learn how sanctification actually works. How does sanctification work? How does my maturing as a Christian work? How does my growth as a Christian work? Work. How do I become more like Christ? And that is exactly what Paul has been talking about starting all the way back in chapter 1, verse 27, when he called us to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's talking about sanctification. And here in these verses, we are going to find out how it works. There will be two parts to this sermon. Only two parts. Number one, man's part in sanctification. That's verse 12. And part two, God's part in sanctification, which is in verse 13. Before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Will you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity you've given us, another day that you've made for us to gather together and to 
come before you and your throne with your people and worship you. As we continue to worship you through the preaching of your word, would you even now sanctify us? Use the preaching of your word for myself included to make us more like Jesus, to mature us, to make us more obedient, to grow us in grace, to help us bear fruit. Sanctify us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. If you're using one of the Bibles that we have here at church, you'll find it on page 637. In my experience, many Christians do not understand how sanctification works. I didn't understand how sanctification worked for a long time. And it may already be clear to you by the headings of my outline, but sanctification is a cooperative effort between man and God. Sanctification is a cooperative effort between you and God. You have a part, you have a role, and God has a part, and God has a role. But listen, both are absolutely essential. Both are essential. So if you don't, to use Paul's word in verse 12, work, if you don't work, No sanctification. If God doesn't work, no sanctification. This is both and. Now, unlike justification and glorification, they, that salvation, is all of God. We've got to have that distinction clear. When it comes to your justification, it was all of God. You do nothing. You did nothing. You made no contribution whatsoever to your justification by God. There was no work you did. There was no being better than someone else you did. There was no standard that you attained. There was nothing that was all 100% of God. You made zero contribution. God justified you. You had nothing to do with it. It was His work alone. Sanctification, however is a work, a cooperation between man and God. Justification and glorification are monergistic. Some of you like the theological website, monergism. That's what it's talking about. Your justification, your glorification someday, that is a monergistic work, but sanctification is synergistic. In justification, there is an active agent, that's God, and there was a passive agent, and that was you. But in your sanctification, there are two active agents, you 
and God. So you've got to work, I've got to work, and God's got to work. And if we don't all work, I'm not going to be sanctified. You're not going to be sanctified. We will not progressively be saved from the power and the practice of sin. Here is how it's put in the Baptist Catechism of 1751. Here are the answers to two questions in that catechism. What is justification and what is sanctification? And and I want you to listen for the difference. Question 85, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein He pardons all our sins and He accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So did you hear that? You didn't do anything in there. I didn't do anything in there. God was active. I was passive. He saved me. But listen to question 87. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. That's a little different. Not an act, a moment in time act, but a work. An ongoing work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. There I am. I'm in that one. I have to die unto sin. I have to, in the words of Paul, put off sin. And I have to do, I have to live unto righteousness. So there's things I don't do and there's things I need to do and that's a process. It's sanctification. And I'm cooperating and working with God in that. But I was not cooperating with God when He justified me. That salvation was totally, Jonah 2.9 says, of the Lord. Remember our statement earlier. We're going to see if our two verses today teach that sanctification is a cooperative effort between man and God through which we are progressively being saved from the power and practice of sin. Is that true? We're going to get started, but as we're looking at these verses, I want to invite you to to do something with me that I've already done this week. Consider your growth as a Christian. Consider your sanctification. And I want you to think concretely about your besetting sins. I want you to think, get them right now in your mind. If there's a table in front of you, and don't worry, no one else is in the room. But if there's a table in front of you, I want to get those sins out and put them on the table in front of you. What are those besetting sins? What are those remaining sins? I hope you know and can name yours. 
There are things by God's grace that He has just taken from you in your sanctification. There are temptations you used to have, and you don't have them anymore. There are wicked desires you used to have, and you don't have them anymore. But there are also, aren't there, there are besetting, we call them sins. There is remaining sin. There is sin that you've been struggling with for 40 years. There are temptations that still rise up with as much force as they did 20 years ago. And you find yourself having sinful reflexes still that you you had 10 years ago. I have them. I know what they are. I pray more than anything. I wish more than anything that God would just do that miraculous work where they're just gone. But there's many that are not. There's some that are. And so if I've got a table in front of me, what I'm doing right now is to make this very practical as we're talking about sanctification, is I've got those right there on the table. I've got there right on the table. To give you an example, my sinful inordinate desire to be respected by people. I've got that on the table. And it wells up when my children disrespect me or I perceive them as disrespecting me or my wife disrespects me or I perceive her as disrespecting me or anyone disrespects me or I perceive them as disrespecting me. I have a sinful reflex to get selfish and angry and defensive that seems to be there like it was 20 years ago. And I want to work that out. I can spend three hours putting other things on the table. I'm not. But you get yours on the table. That was to try to encourage you to do the same thing. Let's think concretely about those besetting sins. As we look at verse 12, part one. What is man's part in sanctification? Let's begin in verse 12. Therefore... Some of you are thinking, man, why does that word have to keep showing up? Because every time that word's there, we spend 20 minutes on one word. That's an important word again. Anytime you see the word therefore, you should always ask, what's that therefore, therefore? That's the rule. It's pointing back. We're learning this. It's pointing back to what Paul has already said in verses 5 through 11. So what he is about to say is based on the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. That's what we find right before. Jesus humbled himself by coming to earth. He died on the cross and then he was exalted by God the Father and is now king over the universe. And one day, every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. Therefore, and here's where Paul is going, work out your salvation. That's the punch, I think. That is what Christ has done. That is what Christ is doing now. And that is how the story is going to end. With bowing and confessing and worship and glory. Therefore, get to work. I think is what 
the connection is. Therefore, verse 12, my beloved. Now that is who Paul is talking to. His beloved. He's talking to Christians. There is not anything in these verses for unbelievers. This is for believers. It is written to Christians. And Christians are beloved. If you're a Christian, you are beloved. You're loved by people. You're loved by pastors. You're loved by God. I hope you experience all three of those. But it is true. In a very distinct way as a Christian, you are loved by other people. Other Christians. You are loved by your pastors. I hope you are a member in a local church where you are loved by pastors. And most of all, most significantly, you are loved by God as evidenced by your justification and your adoption into his family. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that phrase, but apparently... It was common for these churches to behave differently when Paul was not around. Kind of like kids behaving differently when mom and dad are not around. Maybe it was like that. They were as many Christians are when it comes to their spiritual growth. Think of it this way. They were unhealthily dependent on other men and women. Not saying that your friends aren't important. Not saying that your spouse isn't important, but you've heard me say this before, but who you need is God. Who you need is Christ. So Paul is telling the Philippians that their conduct should not be based on his presence. Whether he shows up or not, they need to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. They must live for God and not for Paul. So let's keep reading. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. And there's the main exhortation, the main instruction, the main command. Philippians, Paul is saying, Veritas Church, God is saying, work out your salvation. This is not optional. I must, you must, work out our salvation. Now remember, when Paul says salvation, he's not talking about justification. He's not saying work out that past reality. He's not saying work out your justification. You were not saved by works. You were saved by grace. Maybe you've heard it this way. You were not saved by works, but you were saved unto works. The works don't save a Christian, but a Christian works. And the works are evidence that you have been saved by grace. If you want to really understand that, it's so clear in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. 
in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Where it is clear that it is by grace we have been saved, but we have been saved for good works, and God is constantly putting tons of them in front of us every day for us to do. But that working is sanctification. It's not justification. You must work to become more like Christ. This is a cooperative effort. You must work to become more like Christ. Some Christians will say, or some Christians secretly believe that because I'm saved by grace, it does not matter how I live. And that's been going on for 2,000 years. Well, if I'm really saved by grace, then therefore, it does not matter how I live. It does not matter what I do. I can let go and let God. No. Christians, it matters how you live. How you live matters. And this sanctification won't just happen. You can't just expect it. You can't just pray about it. You can't just assume it. It requires, what is Paul driving home here? It requires work. Bearing fruit requires work. Becoming like Christ requires work. Sanctification requires work. There are so many verses that we could cite. Let me just give you four. First one is Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There's work. You must put to death the deeds of the body. Or to put that another way, you must kill sin. That is something that you've got to be willing to do and something that you've got to do. It is work in your sanctification. Put sin to death. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. 1 Timothy 6.11 and 12. Paul writes to Timothy and says, But as for you, Timothy, O man of God, flee these things, Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. There's work. That's not passive. He's telling him, he's telling you, Christian, you need to pursue these things. You need to work after these things. Righteousness won't just happen. Godliness won't just happen. Faith won't just happen. Love won't just happen. Steadfastness won't just happen. Gentleness won't just happen. You've got to, what does Paul say? Fight. You've got to stand up and fight. Not to be saved, but because you have been saved. In Matthew 5.29, does this sound like work to you? 
If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. I don't think what Jesus was saying was literal, but he means to point us to a reality. Fight. Work. Eye-gouging work. Eye-gouging sanctification. That sounds like a lot of work. No wonder Paul then uses these following words to describe how we work it out. He says at the end of verse 12, what? With fear and trembling. If you were caught up in those four verses, there was some fear and trembling in your own heart. Work out, Paul says, your own salvation with fear and trembling. So this is serious work. This is fearful, trembling work. We've talked about this fear of God before. It is not a fear that drives us away from God. It is a fear that drives us to God. It is like the fear of a child before his loving father. A fear of displeasing God. A fear full of awe and respect. A a loving fear, like the trembling fear of a small child just rescued from the ocean by his father. It is a fear of what almost was, is the kind of fear we have before a just God who's been merciful to us. This fear is a serious and deep fear. Reverence for God that leads to a desire to please Him in all things. No fears, no grace, John Bunyan said. We must work out our sanctification, our salvation with fear and trembling. I hope that our part in sanctification is clear this morning. This is not all you do in your sanctification. But this is at least what you do. And this is basically what you do. You work. You work it out. You fight. First Timothy 6. You kill. Romans 8, verse 13. I take that sin that's on the table, and when it rears its ugly head, I throw it on the ground, I step on its neck. And I fight, and I fight, and I fight until that temptation is dead. That's work. Let's move on to verse 13. Verse 13, I said this already, 
will tell us God's part in sanctification. I'm working it out. What is God doing? We'll find out in verse 13. But let me clarify something about the, the way that man's part and the way that God's part are connected by Paul for us. So we've got man's part in sanctification, verse 12. It's neat and tidy. And then we've got God's role in sanctification, verse 13. But let me just say a word about how those are connected because otherwise this might happen and this wouldn't be good. This is not just an academic explanation of how sanctification works. And I don't want us to leave here just with a, you know, an academic explanation and understanding, well, that's how sanctification works. That's what God does, and, and that's what I do, and that was all very interesting, and thank you. That's not what Paul is doing here. This, there's much more that Paul is doing here, and you, you figure it out when you see how he connects what man's part is, what your part is, and what my part is, and what God's part is. And, and, and you see that this way. If this was just an academic explanation, then Paul would, look at the text with me, then Paul would have just used the word and between verse 12 and verse 13, and not the word for. So that connects these two roles differently. He's not just telling us one truth and another truth and do what you want with them. No, he's connecting them with that word for. If the word and was just there, it would kind of read like this. It'd be like Paul was saying, hey, here is how sanctification works. You work it out and God works it in. That's what we're going to see God does. He's work, we're working out, he's working in. So if the word and was there, it's just this interesting explanation. You work out your sanctification, and God works in your sanctification. But that's not how Paul puts it. Paul puts it this way. Work out your salvation for it is God who works in you. Or we could say it this way. Paul says, work out your salvation because God is is at work in you. That's the connection. Verse 13 does not complete the explanation of how sanctification works. Verse 13 provides the encouragement to do verse 12. It's not just completing the... It does complete the explanation. Okay, I get it, what man does and what God does, but... That's not all that's happening here. That word for, that word because tells me that verse 13, that is the encouragement to do verse 12. So it works like this. You should be convicted by verse 12 and then you should be encouraged by verse 13. That should, that should be your Bible reading experience here. You read verse 12. Oh. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You should be convicted by that. All this stuff that I'm not working out. All this stuff that I'm not paying attention to. All this stuff that I'm just entertaining and not trying to put it to death. All this stuff. You should feel conviction. And then you should be motivated, incentivized, encouraged when you read verse 13. 
So verse 12 is the exhortation. Verse 13 is the encouragement. Verse 12 is the instruction. Verse 13 is the incentive. Or verse 12 is the call. And verse 13 is the comfort. So let's look at part two, God's part in sanctification. What does he do? Verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God works. I work. And now I learn God works. How does God work? Well, first, he works in you. He works in me. He works in you. This is not work outside of you or around you. This is not a work of circumstances. That's not what he's talking about. It's not changing others around you. This is a work in you. John Owen said he works in us and with us, not against us or without us. So here is God, we're being told, working from the inside out. He's working deeply in my heart. Second, this is written in the present tense. Tense is something really important in the Bible to understand. Is this this taking place in the past? Is this something that's going to happen in the future? Is this going on right now and it's going to stop? Is it going on right now and it's going to keep going on? Well, here's what we have here. This is written, verse 13, in the present tense, which means that God is working in you and His work in you. Think right now today, Christian. God's work in you is continuous and ongoing. It means that He is working, the way this is written, God is working in you all the time. God is working in you today. God will be working in you tomorrow. God will be working in you a week from Wednesday and so on. God is committed to this continuous, ongoing work deep in our hearts, we're being told. Third, the word for work, it's a different word that's used for work in verse 12. This word about how God is working in you means to energize And to cause. Think about this with me. We're being told that God is working in me. And he is working at an energizing level. He is working at a causal level. So what I want to know when I hear that is, well, what is he causing me to do? What is he effecting me to do? What is he energizing me to do? And that's fourth. We're told by the second part of this verse that God is energizing you and he is causing you at the level of your actions and your wills. Now, I don't know what else there is. Other than he is working in me at the level of my will, my volition, my desire, my wants, and then my actual behavior and what I do. That sort of covers everything. 
He is working in you, Christian, at the level of your actions and at the level of your wills. It is God, we're told, who works in you. And then what does it say next? Both to will and to work. That is more than helping you. Isn't it? That is so much more than helping you. That is so much more than encouraging you. That is so much more than strengthening you. That is God taking you, Christian, and saying, I've got something that I'm going to do with you, and I am going to get it done. Because I can and will work at the deepest possible level in you. At the level of your will, your wants, your desires, at the level of your behavior, your actions, your words. That's where God is saying, I'm working in you, Christian. In his commentary on Philippians, Gordon Fee says that this verb, the verb for work, as elsewhere, does not so much mean that God is doing it for them, but that He supplies the necessary empowering. Their obedience is ultimately something God effects in and among them. And then He says this, Not only does God empower their doing, but also the willing that lies behind the doing. This is what John Piper calls what is in a Christian and their sanctification as spirit-empowered, blood-bought, willing. There is a willing in a Christian. There is a desire in a Christian to conquer sin, to fight sin, to get rid of sin, to kill sin. And that desire is there from God. He's encouraging us. In conclusion... So what exactly is that verse saying that is so encouraging in your sanctification? What exactly is so comforting in verse 13 that's going to comfort me, it's going to encourage me to work out my salvation? Well, the comfort in verse 13 is what the comfort almost always is for the Christian. It is the sovereignty of God. Charles Spurgeon said when asked how he, and we talked a week ago about some of the things he did deal with in his life. How do you deal with all this? He said, it's easy. Every night I lay my head on the pillow of the sovereignty of God. Well, that's the comfort in verse 13. The comfort is the sovereignty of God. Christian, you are not on your own. 
God is sovereign and in control even of your sanctification. God does not say, this is not how the verse goes, and and listen, be thankful for this, because it could say this. Work out your salvation. Good luck. I mean, if I was God, right? I mean, the things that I would say and do, it'd be terrible like that. God does not say, work out your salvation. Now figure it out. God does not say, work out your salvation. Now you're on your own. I've justified you. I'm going to glorify you. But now you sanctify yourself. No, verse 13 is saying, listen, even over your sanctification, God is sovereign. Alec Matier said, but over against all that, there is the great encouraging truth that God will never let his people go. He is always at work. He never sleeps. He is tirelessly active. We forget. He does not. We backslide, but we cannot halt, defer, or deflect His work. He is the active indweller. Are you encouraged in your sanctification? Remember those sins you put out on the table. Are you, I hope you are, convicted I'm not dealing with this. I'm not struggling with this. I'm not fighting this. I don't even know what this is. I don't even know what's at the root of it. I don't even know what it looks like. I just ignore it. I just laugh it off. I just move on to something else. Are you convicted? And then as you read this truth of verse 13, are you encouraged? This is so encouraging. This is one of the most encouraging things I could read and understand in the Bible. Because listen, real Christians get discouraged in their sanctification. If you don't, there might be a problem. Seriously. If you're not discouraged in your sanctification, if you're not frustrated in your sanctification, if you don't think things like this, there might be a problem. God, I know that I am accepted by you and it is all of grace. I know that you have died for me. I know that I am forgiven of my sin. I know that I'm going to spend eternity with you in heaven. But when I look at the sin that is still in me, I wonder sometimes if I actually love you. Christians feel that way. They fret over that. They get anxious about that. They think about that. If you're not a Christian, you don't care. You don't care about that. You're good. You're fine. There's not a problem. He's worse. She's terrible. I'm good. But if you are a Christian... Sometimes you question yourself. 
Because why, after being a Christian for 20 years, do I still want to be respected so much? Why is my reflex still to get so angry over this and selfish over this? And why? God, you tell me to love you with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And here is something that I still have not surrendered to you. I'm not sure I love you. Oh God, what if I don't love you? What if I've deceived myself? What if this is never going to change? That's why verse 13 is so encouraging. Because verse 13 is the encouragement of the gracious, continuous, sovereign work of God in us. Paul said way back in Philippians 1.6, you remember what he said? He said, I am sure of this, that he, that's God, who began a good work in you, he justified you, caused you to be born again. Paul says, I'm totally sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Well, how is he going to do that? Because I know myself, and I know that I don't cooperate, and I know this, and I know that, and I know my besetting sin and my remaining sin. So how can I be sure that God is going to bring this sanctification to completion. What is the answer? Verse 13 is the answer. God is in control. God is sovereign. God is gracious. And He is continually at work in me. So verse 12 comes at you and says, You must change. And it does. Christian, you must change. That sin that you're not dealing with, that is not acceptable. You must change. And then verse 13 comes and says, you can change and you will change. Because God is at work in you. To will and to do. It may not always feel like God is at work in us. But he is. God will not give up his work in us. How do we know God will not give up his work in us? I think we're assured of that in the very last part of verse 13. Which tells us God's motive in working in us. And let's read it all together. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. And that good pleasure is about his work, not yours. He's not causing you to work for his good pleasure. It means that he's working in you for his good pleasure. The motive of God in working in you is that it pleases Him. He loves it. He loves to work in a Christian and transform them and change them 
all the way to glory. I'll close with this quote. It is important, this is Alec Motier again, it is important to ask why he does it. Why does God work in us? If he, if, if he works only where he finds a promising response or if only where there is evidence of progress or if only when we really desire him to do so. And can you imagine that? Can you imagine if, and God works in you, not for his good pleasure, but when he sees like, progress, or when he sees potential, or when he sees evidence of his work. I'm looking at myself, right? And that's my struggle. That's my question. I'm not seeing progress. I'm not seeing a lot of evidence. If, he says, if if that was why God did it, then none of us can entertain any hope of reaching the great goal. But it is not like that. He does it because he wants to. It is of free, divine choice for his good pleasure. Nothing then can stop the ongoing divine work of sanctification. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we ask that you would, by your spirit, convict us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to not take our salvation for granted, to not take any progress that we have seen in us and be satisfied with it, but to work out, to fight, to put to death sin, to resist the enemy. God, convict us to work out our salvation, put in us a a willing to fight. And God, I pray that your people would be encouraged in this battle, in this struggle. They would be encouraged by your mighty hand that is over and under and behind every one of them, accomplishing every single one of your goals in them. I pray, God, that when we're working, but the progress is not what we wish and not what we hope, that we would be content and remember that you have not stopped working. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.